0: All right, we're going to stick with uh, Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation 15 uh, today. We're actually going to read 15 and 16 just for context, but we're just going to talk about 15 this week and 16 next week. 15, Chapter 15 marks a, a shift in Revelation. We said the last days began in Acts chapter 2. So we've been living in the last days for uh, 2,000 years. If that's true, then Revelation 15 it's the beginning of the last few minutes before Jesus returns, where we're, the, the clock is winding down here. Just to remind you, chapter 12, 13, and 14 compress several thousand years of history into three, uh, three chapters. Chapter 12, it's, it's a look back. It's what's happened in the past. Uh, John sees a sign, two signs in heaven, He sees a woman, that's the people of God. He sees a red dragon. that's Satan. Satan gets kicked out of heaven and directs all of his fury and anger towards the church. Chapter 13 is what's happening. Uh, pre- it's present. So it's present for whoever's reading the Bible at any point. Going all the way back to the first audience that John wrote to uh, 2,000 years ago, present for us to be present, uh, moving forward as well, that this dragon, Satan, has empowered two entities, the beast and the false prophet, to lead people into uh, astray and also to attempt to, to destroy the church. And that beast is—it's any governmental system that seeks to uh, to put itself in the place of God. It's seeking worship from people. It's seeking to suppress Christianity. It's seeking to persecute the church. And the false prophet is—it's the propaganda system that kind of that directs worship towards the beast. And we saw in chapter thirteen that the beast actually gets—he does some damage to the church. Christians are thrown in jail. Christians are persecuted, and and some Christians are even killed. And then in chapter 14 it's a look forward. It's what's going to happen in the future. We see that the saints standing victoriously with Jesus. We see these John hears these three angels, one proclaiming the eternal gospel everybody is going to hear. The gospel and have an opportunity to respond. We fallen is Babylon the Great. We don't know what Babylon is yet. We'll see that in chapter 17 and 18, but we do know that Babylon it's an entity. It's not a person and And that entity is opposed to God and will be judged. And then everyone individually will also be judged. And that judgment will be based on whether or not they've been sealed by God or whether they've received the mark of the beast. Those who've been sealed by God will be harvested like wheat and stored with Jesus. And those who've received the mark of the beast, they will be harvested like grapes and and stomped by God, which sounds brutal and it will be. And so those three chapters encompass this... That This ages-long struggle between the people of God and Satan. And then chapter 15, again, it's a shift uh, in in time. We're we're now looking at the last few minutes of history. And again, obviously, that's metaphorical. So we're going to read chapter 15 and 16, but we're not going to talk about chapter 16 this week, and you'll be glad once you hear what it is. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels, with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who have been victorious over the beast in its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven last plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then chapter 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, "'Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments.' The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains.' And their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouths of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They were demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains closed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It's done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away from the mountains. Excuse me. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on the people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. That's a difficult chapter. We're going to get into that next week, but I need you to see the context. 15 and 16 fit together. They're, they're, it's, it, the 15 is preparation for what we read in 16. I didn't think 15 would make a ton of sense if you didn't have uh, the context of chapter 16. We'll talk about the, the seven angels and those plagues next week. Again, this week we're going to just focus on chapter 15, which is Preparatory, So before the devastation of those seven last plagues are poured out on the earth, John sees some things and he hears some things that set the stage for that work, that provide the context for that devastating work in chapter 16. So what does John see and what does John hear? Uh, He he sees lots of things, What we're going to focus on just a few. Uh, You may have picked up on something else as you were reading. I saw several things that jumped out at me outside of the seven angels with the plagues, which again, we'll talk about next week. He sees it's a throne room vision. We've seen this throughout Revelation. And when we see these throne room visions, we're reminded of the sovereignty of God. And that's really, really important. We're reminded that God is in control of the events that we read about in Revelation, we're reminded that God is accomplishing his purpose. And his purpose is to establish his kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. We saw from chapter 16, the first stage of that is cleansing the earth. The first stage of that is, is, is removing all of those who oppose his rule and his reign. Nobody opposes his rule and his reign in heaven. And so for him to reign on earth as he does in heaven, that means there can't be anyone who's hostile to him, there can't be anyone or anything that's resisting his reign. And that's chapter 16, and again, that can be brutal to read, but we're reminded of God's sovereignty. This is a throne room vision. And all of the things that we know that are true of God's character are still true of him. He's still gracious, he's still merciful, he's still kind, he's also righteous, and he's holy, and he's just. We see this, this John sees uh, the, the, these, these people, it's, it's the 144,000. He doesn't name them, but it's those who've been victorious over the beast and over the false prophet. They didn't worship the image of the beast. And we know from chapter 13 that those who didn't worship the image of the beast, they could be killed. So these very well in, in this number are martyrs. And they're singing around this sea. And, and that reminds us that God keeps his promises. Way back in chapter 7, God sealed the 144,000, and here we see them singing praise to the Lord. He's kept them. He did not keep them physically safe necessarily, but he kept them spiritually safe. God is someone who keeps his promises, and we're reminded of that when we see this, this uh, collection of people singing praise to the Lord. Uh, the sea, that's, it appears twice in Revelation. It's a little enigmatic. What exactly is the sea in uh, ancient thought, the sea was considered dangerous and even wicked. And the fact that this sea is clear as glass, it makes me think that uh, of God is triumphing over not just wickedness, but also the forces of chaos. The idea, again, that the sea is smooth and, and clear. What else does John see? John sees uh, he sees the temple, which is called the tabernacle of the covenant law, which is a pretty interesting phrase. The tabernacle and the temple are not the same thing. The tabernacle preceded the temple. The tabernacle was uh, that was constructed under Moses' leadership. The temple was constructed under Solomon's leadership hundreds of years later. They serve the same purpose, but they're not the same thing. This idea of it it containing the covenant of the law being called the, the tabernacle of the covenant law, that makes me think of Exodus, which I think is probably the best parallel to the things that we see in Revelation, the way God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh and from Egyptian slavery it's very similar to what these first churches who are reading this book or, or other uh, congregations who maybe find themselves in the circumstances of Revelation. It's a great parallel, that God delivers his people even from the most powerful empire, the most wicked person uh, on the planet. At this point, that's, that's who Domitian is to these seven churches. He's someone who's claiming to be God. He, he holds all the power, these these the, these. Small churches, maybe two dozen, three dozen people, they don't have any power at all. They don't have any political power. They don't have any military power. They're basically at his mercy. And just like the Israelites were in Egypt, they were slaves. They didn't have any power at all. You had Pharaoh who was not just hard-hearted but seems to be demonically inspired. He was attempting to to, to wipe out the Israelite people. He said, kill all the male Hebrew babies. That's genocide. That's what he was about. And we see the same thing with Domitian. He's claiming to be God. He's In some of these congregations, they've already had people thrown in jail. They've already had people whose businesses are being boycotted. They've even had at least one martyr. This is not just a bad emperor. This is someone, according to chapter 13, who's being inspired and empowered by Satan to accomplish Satan's purposes. And, and, and to be reminded, hey, God keeps his promises. And just like we can look back and see that God delivered our people from Pharaoh and Egyptian slavery, how comforting would that be if you're part of one of these small churches? And you're, you're hearing reports of what's happening around you. And, and, and you're, you're reading the newspaper and you're watching TV and you're keeping up with what your friends are saying on Twitter and none of it looks good. It doesn't look good for Christians. And to be reminded, hey, God, he's worked a miraculous deliverance in our past. Can we trust him to do the same thing for us now? Just that little phrase, tabernacle of the covenant law, it would bring all of those memories to mind for these believers, I think. And the last thing we see, and this may be a stretch, I don't know, golden bowls, uh, they've occurred twice. This is the second time that we see them. And the last time they were connected with prayers, the golden bowls that were full of incense and the incense were the prayers of God's people. And, and you probably don't remember, but when we looked at that back in chapter, I think it was in chapter five, we said that those prayers are being collected by God. So every time you're praying for Righteousness. every time you're praying for justice, every time you're praying for healing, every time you're praying for salvation, all of those are specific prayers that you could put under the umbrella of God, I'm praying for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in my life and in this city as it is in heaven. All of those prayers can fall under that umbrella. There's the specific applications of God's rule and of his reign. And all of those prayers are being collected in heaven. None of them are forgotten. None of them get lost. All of them are being collected. And at just the right time, God is going to answer those prayers. And a portion of that answer is the cleansing of the earth. It's, it's, it's God dealing righteously and justly with wickedness and with evil. I, I do think there's a connection there. The prayers that we're praying now, we may not always get to see the answer, but that doesn't mean that that, that those prayers are, are, are not going to be answered. That's, Revelation, to me, says that they will be at just the right time. And again, one expression of that answer, it's the initial step, is the cleansing of the earth. And that, for some of us, that kind of gives us heartburn. When you, I read through chapter 16, you hadn't gotten over that. Some of those things that you're reading, and it sounds cruel, and it sounds torturous, and it almost sounds malicious and vindictive, and you're thinking, how can the... The God of, that, that I know, the Father of Jesus Christ, this one who says the first will be last. Like, I, I don't get how is he doing these things. And, and that's where what John hears is so important. He hears that hymn, that hymn that's so important. I'll read it again. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week when we get into those seven last plagues. But for now, allow that hymn, just those two verses, to set the context for those acts. Those acts that we read, and again, that some of them make our skin crawl or our stomach churn, recognize that they're expressions of God's righteousness and they're expressions of God's justice. They're an expression of God's holiness. God does not allow us to resist him and rebel against him without consequence forever. He's extraordinarily patient with us. He's kind, he's gracious, he's merciful. And there's a point which he will judge us based on what we do. And for everyone who chooses to stand on their own track record, who doesn't recognize their need for a savior, who says before God, either I'm good enough, or who says before God, I don't care about you. They're gonna reap what they've sown. We mentioned last week, God is a source of all good things. And if we cut ourselves off from him, we're not left, there's nothing left for us, except hell, literally, there's nothing left for us. And so again, if Reading those, those plagues in chapter 16, if that is really heavy for you, I think that's great, that, that's fine that it is. But recognize that the broader context. The guys around that sea, some of them have been martyred, persecuted for their faith. So, so, some of these people have been not just spit on or talked bad about, it, they just have been inconvenienced. They've been killed. And this is God saying, I'm standing up for you. This is God saying, I'm vindicating you. Way back, the fifth seal in chapter 6, you don't remember it, but it's it's the martyrs under the altar. And what they say is, God, how long? How long until you vindicate us? In chapter 15 and chapter 16 say, now is the time. So again, the context there, God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. These are not elements that we necessarily focus on a ton in the comfortable West. But it's a, it's a core characteristic, it's a core part of who he is And chapters 15 and 16 are the expression of that righteousness, the expression of that holiness, and the expression of that justice. So what does that look like for us? As I was reading chapter 15 and trying to figure out how does that connect with us and connect with where we are, again, in the comfortable, affluent West, we're definitely living under, you know, that, that word unprecedented gets thrown around all the time in lots of wrong ways, but the, we are living in unprecedented times now. The, the things that we're experiencing are not things that any of us have experienced in our lifetime. And it is unprecedented and it's, we're, we're trying to navigate new guidelines and regulations and information on a day-to-day basis. And what does Revelation 15 have to say to us? And I would that the idea of remembering is what sticks out to me. The idea of remembering, when things are, when you're looking for a handhold, when you're trying to find some solid ground, remembering can provide some stability for you. It's a word that's used often, particularly in the Old Testament. God tells his people to remember. And I would encourage you, again, as you're trying to navigate the, the, the unknowns that every day seems to bring. You're trying to establish some new sense of rhythm and normalcy to your life. What are you remembering? A couple of things I would encourage you to think about this week. One is to remember God's character. That was one of the things in chapter 15. Seeing the throne room. We're reminded of God's sovereignty. That's what that visual evokes God is sovereign. He's the one who's on the throne. Do you live in that reality? Uh, God, to say God is sovereign means God is in control. I don't think that means that he sent the coronavirus. You may think that he did, and we can agree to disagree on that. But a point that we would all agree on is even if God didn't send it, God can use it. And I would say it's not just that God can. It's that God wants to. God wants to use these circumstances to make each one of us more like Jesus and to transform our community. If you can remember that God is sovereign, then that can give you a window for uh, taking advantage, for lack of a better word, leverage, I guess, maybe is the word that we would use to leverage your circumstances in a way that can that, that for the Lord, it becomes a tool in his hands to make you more like Jesus. You're not, you're not a victim of what's happening anymore. What you're saying is, God, I remember that you're sovereign. I remember that you're in control. I remember that you will use everything for my good because I love you. And so I'm asking you to do that. And so I don't know when the last time you asked God to say, what are you trying to do in me through this? How can you use these circumstances to make me more like Jesus? And how do you want to use these circumstances to impact our community? We say we talk about these three giants in our city; these things that that, that keep us from really moving forward as a community into being the people that God wants us to be. Busyness is one, and mammon is one, and kind of the spirit of rejection is one. And where we are now, the, these circumstances they. Give us an opportunity. Nobody's busy. Nobody's busy. And one of the reasons that we say we can't slow down is because we'll get left behind. And now we have nationwide imposed slowdown time. No more excuses. Are you asking the Lord, are there some things about this rhythm that's currently being imposed upon me that you would like me to continue when activities pick back up? Are you asking him that? Mammon. Money, I think there was 3.3 million people filed for unemployment last week, the largest number of initial jobless, jobless claims ever. In the last three weeks, I think it was the three largest drop, single-day drops in the stock market. I don't know if anybody's trusting in money right now, and if you are, I think you see how fleeting that could be. Are you asking the Lord? This, keep, use these circumstances to remind me of where my true provision comes from? Would you use these circumstances in our community to set people free from being enslaved to money and recognizing they have a good father who longs to take care of them? God is sovereign. Remember that. Also remember that God is merciful. We don't have time. I guess we do because you could fast forward, but we're not going to. 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. Same story is told from two different perspectives. There's a lot there that we're not going to get into. God is angry at Israel, probably because uh, Absalom, uh, who was one of David's sons, David is the king, God's chosen one. Absalom was one of his sons. He led a coup, and a lot of the Israelites followed Absalom. David holds on to the throne, and God's angry. And I, I think that's probably why. We don't know exactly why, but that would be maybe the best guess is he's mad at the nation because so many of them followed after Absalom and didn't stick with David. And so the Bible says God incites David to take a census, and David does, and, and it's, he shouldn't have. He's counting the fighting men, and I think he's probably doing it because he's scared, because he's just gotten back power, and he's probably thinking, all of, my, all of these enemies that I've, been, that I've defeated, they're probably hearing that I'm weak. And so they're probably coming after me. And so I need to see who I've got. I need to see how big my army is. And so he sends out Joab, his commander, and they count. And there's uh, 1.3 million guys who can fight. So maybe the nation is 5 million people total. So that's kind of the stats. And, And then David's, he's convicted. I love the word for conviction in the Old Testament. It's David's heart hit him in the face. That's what that word means, literally. And he realizes he screwed up. By taking the census. And so Gad, who is a, a prophet, comes to him and says, God gives you three choices. You can have famine for seven years. Your Bible may say three. You can have famine for seven years. You can have three months of fleeing for your enemies, three months where you're getting beat on the battlefield. Or you can have three days of plague. Three days where God sends a plague on the nation. And what David says in 2 Samuel 24:14, he says, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord because his mercy is great. I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. Remember that God is sovereign and remember that God is merciful. Remember that. God doesn't treat us according to what we deserve, we don't get what we deserve. We get what his kindness and his love determine. It's so interesting. So David picks the plague, and so the, the angel of the Lord moves to the nation. 70,000 people are killed. So just perspective, about 30,000 have died worldwide from COVID-19. That's a big number. 70,000 Israelites died, and it wasn't over the course of two or three months. It was in a matter of hours. Some people think the plague only lasted for nine hours. From the morning of the first day just until the evening sacrifice. The angel of the Lord is moving towards Jerusalem. And God, who's the one who said, it's going to be three days, says, time out. He relents of this punishment. He stops the angel. And then you can read the rest of the story. David recognizes what's going on. And he buys the field. And he offers a sacrifice. And that land becomes a place where the temple will be erected. But what's interesting to me is... God remembered mercy. There's Habakkuk 3:1 says, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. God is sovereign and he's merciful. He doesn't treat us according to what our track record deserves. If there's a part of you in the midst of all these circumstances, if you're thinking God is punishing us or God is judging us, I would, even if that's where you're coming from, I would say, plead for mercy. 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21 says, God has mercy. Even in judgment, God has mercy. Ask him for that. Remember that. Remember your own testimony. Revelation 12 says we overcome Satan by the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony. Your testimony, that's the record of what God has done in your life. Nobody can take that from you. Remember that. God oftentimes told told the Israelites, hey, remember what I did for your ancestors. Remember the Red Sea. Remember the plagues. Remember the way I took care of you in the wilderness. Do you remember your own testimony? When you begin to struggle and you wonder kind of what's going on and and how's God at work, to remember what he's done in your life can be grounding and comforting. Some of you, you may just want to push pause right now. and You may have never shared your testimony. Your kids may not have any idea about what God has done in your life. And maybe you want to share that with them right now. It may be a bit awkward. So here's the two questions that you can ask. What did God save you from? Not just the logistics. I was saved when I was 12 at youth camp. That's, that's, those are the logistics for me. But what did God save you from? Or what did God save me from? Selfishness or arrogance. For some of you, he saved you from an addiction. For some of you, it's, you had a crushing sense of guilt. And then what did God save you for? Are you aware of that? That's your testimony. Do you remember? And the last thing we will be done is to remember your future. You can skip ahead. Revelation 21 and 22, two of the best chapters in all the Bible. They tell us how it ends. God wins. And if you're in his family, you win too. You remember his character. He's sovereign and he's merciful. Remember your testimony. That's the record of what he's done in your life. And remember your future. He's working all things together for his victory, for his glory, and for your good. And you can count on that. We want you to take communion now, and we're going to do that here uh, as well. Communion is a great time to remember. We remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember the gift of Jesus. We remember the Father sending. We remember Jesus willingly coming. We remember the Holy Spirit applying the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection to our life. So I'm going to say a prayer, and I would encourage you uh, in your home to, uh, to take communion. We're two weeks out from Easter. It's easy to forget that with all of the things going on. Easter's two weeks from, uh, from the 29th. As we approach Easter, should turn your hearts towards the cross. That's a remembering. That's a remembering of what God has done for us, not just what He's done for you. That's a remembering of what He's done for all of us. A reminder that our sins have been forgiven. A reminder that we can be healed of all of our diseases and that we will be if not in this life, then in the next one. A reminder that Satan has already been defeated. He's already been kicked out of heaven. And his long-term fate, his eternal fate is already sealed. A reminder that Jesus has overcome death. Even death can't separate you from the love of God. Death for us is just a transition from this life into a better one. A reminder of the great love that God has for you, that He didn't withhold His only Son. It's a reminder of the justice and the righteousness of God, that He doesn't wink at sin. Sometimes we wish He would wink at our sin, but we're thankful that He doesn't wink at. You can fill in the blank. Guys who are oppressive and hurting other people. We're thankful it's, it's that we have a God who's just and righteous and who we can trust to deal justly and righteously with wrongdoing. The cross reminds us of that. God didn't sidestep sin. He took it on himself. The cross reminds us that God is gracious and merciful. He's merciful. He doesn't give us the the judgment that we do deserve. He's gracious. He gives us blessings that we don't deserve. The cross reminds us of both of those things. So as you're in your home and you're preparing for communion, I would encourage you in your own heart, maybe just begin to ask the Lord this. God, what do I need to remember? What do I need to remember this morning? You see what's going on in my head and you see what's going on in my heart. You know some of you are anxious, some of you are fearful, some of you are just frustrated, some of you are done, you're over it. God, what do I need to remember this morning so I can be well postured and oriented for the day and the week ahead as you take communion I would say let that be a tangible reminder of the truth that the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart right now and God that's my prayer for children for students for adults, that we would all remember who you are, what you've done for us corporately, what you've done for us personally, and we would all remember where you're taking us, what our future holds. God, I pray as we take communion, I pray that you would remind and that those memories would be vivid and clear to us. That they would provide solid ground on which we can stand in an ever-changing present. That we would stand firm because we recognize you as the changeless one. In Jesus' name. We're so thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you're, you're a rock. You're the rock. And we're recognizing how so many things that we can tend to trust in and lean on. They can't support the full weight of our life. But you can and you do. And so God, my prayer again for everyone who's listening to this, that that would be their testimony this week. Jesus is my rock, and I'm standing firmly upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great week. Let us know if you need anything, and uh, I guess we'll see you back next week.